Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 15th, 2014, and this is episode 1347 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. We, we probably haven't talked about vehicle maintenance and vehicle prep as much as we should, especially I'd say in the last six months. I've got Max Maxwell. Uh, coming on in just a minute, he is an ASC certified technician, third generation mechanic, former United States Army sergeant who even shares some common ground with me because at one time he was stationed at Fort Kobe, Panama, where I called home for a little over a year of my service career. Anyway, before uh, I bring Max on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor, sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey water filtration systems. Shocking, I know that the the Berkey guy, would be the source for Berkey's, but he is. In all seriousness, Jeff is one of the leading distributors for Berkey in the entire world. Like, you take a globe and you look at that and you say, everywhere Berkey's go, who is the guy that sells the most of them for Berkey? And Jeff would be way up at the top of that list. And that means he's got immediate connections to the uh, factory. He can get things taken care of. He is a maniac with customer service. And at his website, Directive21, that's Directive, the word Directive, followed by the numbers 21.com, Jeff has a ton of other great stuff for your prepping needs. If you want a Berkey, don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have got it from the Berkey guy. By the way, the guy that's been supporting the Survival Podcast for almost five years now. Keep that in mind when you're making your decisions about where to buy your Berkey or your filters or your accessories. Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, it would be the guy that I would go to first. Next up today, Jay. M. Bullion. Look, silver and gold should be part of your investing strategy. I'm not saying go out and liquidate all your Federal Reserve notes into silver and gold tomorrow morning. I don't advise that. I advise 5 to 10% of your total wealth portfolio in precious metals to help preserve and protect and insure the rest of your money. And if I'm going to buy physical metal today and I'm not going to walk down to the store and buy it across the cash register and, the, and what have you, if I'm going to actually order it from somebody online... There's only one place I'm going to go, and that's going to be Jam Bullion. And the reason I'm going to go there is it just makes sense to buy from the place with the best price if everything else were equal. And Jam Bullion either has the best price, matches the best price, or is so dadgone close it doesn't matter. We're talking pennies, depending on what you're buying and how much, that I would call them, in general, the best price from all the big suppliers out there. Certainly better pricing than Monix and Atmix, Atmex on both, both things. But if I want to talk to the president of Monix or Atmex, they don't really give a damn. They don't want to talk to me. If I want to talk to Michael, who's the president and owner of Jam Bullion, I can do that anytime I want. Personal service, great pricing, great product, jambullion.com. That's where I go for my silver and gold. That's where I think you should go, too. Next up today, sometimes I don't always do this, but a lot of times I like to mention that the MSB does have discount vendors who are not sponsors. They're just people that are supporters of the MSB because, well, I don't have any more room for sponsors. Um, the sponsor or vendor that I have for you today actually used to be a sponsor, but as we grew and our rates went up a little bit, he got to a point where there's a small business person. He could not really afford our rates, but he stayed on as an MSB supporter. And uh, the website is MERS-radio.com, M-U-R-S-radio.com. He's a great guy. He specializes in just a little bit of gear. It's all mostly the MERS stuff. And... 
I love MERS radio because not only do I have a means of secondary communications, motion detectors tell me if someone's on my property. They come across the base station or the handheld, and they say things like alert sector one or alert sector two. Now, whether you have a large acreage that you want to just know when something's moving around in a certain part of it, or let's say you have a small suburban yard, but you have a dog that likes to take vacations through a gate, knowing there's something at the gate might be a good thing to know. So check it out today if you haven't ever done so, Mirrors Radio. And those of you guys that have been around a long time, remember that, uh, yeah, they were a sponsor for about two and a half, three years at the beginning of the, uh, it's about two years is how long they stuck with us. And, uh, again, this is a guy that, uh, does a really good job, but he is, uh, he's part time. He has a, you know, a day job and he runs this website and that's why he specializes in just a handful of equipment. Knows it very well. Knows it cold. Will help you out with anything you want and uh you know you're helping support a small time entrepreneur if you deal with the with uh with mirrorsradio.com. Anyway, um if you want to get great discounts from people like Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, Jam Bullion, Mirrors Radio, and many other great supporters of the show, either sponsors or just MSB vendors, there's over forty of them. They're part of the benefits section of the MSB or members support brigade. If you join that, you know, it comes out to eighteen point three cents an episode. And uh, you're a member, you support the show, you get all those great discounts. It'll more than pay for your membership. You get free videos, you get free ebooks, you get all kinds of stuff. About two hundred dollars worth of downloadable ebooks are for are available for you for free the day you sign up uh, on a fifty dollar a year project product. That's pretty dead gone good. To learn more, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. Remember, I do take Bitcoin, I do take cash, I take money orders, I take checks, I take silver. You can find out how to do that at the bottom of the uh, members page. You'll see the option to pay by check or money order or mail and uh, the option to pay by Bitcoin if you'd like to do that. Remember, if you like an episode, I take tips from Bitcoin. There's a little button. You can just give me a tip in Bitcoin if you want to. Anything from a, a penny to a couple bucks, whatever you think the show is worth, if you just want to give me a tip in Bitcoin. Uh, with that said, I'm ready to get into uh, the main topic of today's show. It is 1347, so let's go to the year 1347. Alex Shrug at tspwiki.com, the survival wiki with all kinds of information on prepping, survivalism, and modern sustainable living, also has our year in history segment, and this is where Alex publishes those. 1347, Black Death, How Not to Run a Quarantine. After killing an estimated 25 million people in Central Asia, that's, that's no small number, folks, 25 million people, the Black Death enters the gates of Constantinople, today Istanbul, Turkey is where that is, Plague fleas hide within the cargo of Genoan merchants as they carry death from Crimean ports along the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. Port cities know of quarantines, but this plague is so virulent that the city officials lock away entire families in their homes and board up their windows, condemning them to die altogether. The government hires guards to run errands for the quarantine households. The guards spend most of their time tormenting those inside. Only the desperate and incompetent apply for jobs as a nurse for these plague homes. This type of treatment guarantees that a few will report that few will report sick family members. Instead, they will pack their bags, and move to another town, often bringing the plague with them. It's kind of a reverse quarantine. My take by Alex Shrug regarding the quarantine methods: locking people in their homes is obviously a bad idea. Those towns that survive the inst uh, that survive institute sensible, strict, and frankly expensive regulations, often housing sick people sick people separately from suspect and the well and paying people for their old bedding so they can be destroyed. Some clean towns will set guards at the gate to prevent entry, but most of the towns will not be so strict, so they will die. My take by Jack Spirico. This is what disease does, and quarantine is the only thing you can do. 
And reality is to let a disease run its course and get past it, you have to quarantine not the sick, but the well. See, as long as anybody's moving around, sooner or later somebody's uh, exposed and, and, and takes on the disease and spreads it. For quarantines to work, everybody's got to sit on their ass and not go anywhere. Now, in, in the, this time, in the year 1347, if you had a town where no one was sick, and you just didn't let anybody come in, well, that worked. But that means you have to be 100% self-sufficient now, doesn't it? Does it really work? Disease is one of the biggest things we have to worry about in modern times, folks. This is an example of why. A lot of the other things that could go wrong that people think are like the nuclear disasters, right? Like a, a financial collapse. Most financial collapses don't last very long. Did you know that? Do you know that for all the talk of the Weimar Republic and, you know, uh, uh, the hyperinflation and a wheelbarrow full of potatoes, you know, a wheelbarrow full of money needed to buy one, you know, sack of potatoes, all that talk. You know, for all that talk, the financial crisis in Germany, in Weimar, lasted less than three years, and it was followed by a 10-year period. Do you know what the name of that period was? The Golden Era. In fact, it was only the United States going into the Great Depression that derailed the rest of the world and brought financial crisis back to Germany, which led to the opportunity for the rise of the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler. We did it. And we did it more than you think we did. Not just screwing up our economy did it. There's something else we did. I will talk to you more about that in the future on another show, but you might want to do some research for yourself. What parts of the Holocaust have their absolute roots in the United States and the United Kingdom? This is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. When you learn what it is, it will shock you. But that's not what we're doing today. Today, we're talking with Max Maxwell about vehicle maintenance and prep. Max is a cool guy, man. Let me tell you a little bit about his DIY stuff before I bring him on. Max is like a tinker-style DIY prepper. He's built a solar hot water heater uh, from a gas hot, weeder, hot water heater tank and Prius parts. Right. He's also built a hot air heater from dryer vents and bricks, and he's currently going to make a solar oven from an old big screen TV. That's the kind of guy he is. But you know, in half jest, he says, I think I need a max1234.com website like Stephen Harris has. And told him, you better go get it because Steve you know, pretty much owns every 1234everything.com uh, uh, out there. But anyway, man, he's a cool guy. He's here again today to talk about doing your own maintenance, when to get help, and how to have your vehicle prepared in case you have one of those everyday disasters, not necessarily the Black Plague. With that, hey, Max, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, hey, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Glad to have you here. Um, we're going to have you on to talk about maintaining broken vehicles and uh, uh, actually preventing vehicles from getting broken through maintenance and uh, doing repairs and basic vehicle prep and things like that. Can you tell people a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into prepping and, and, and being a mechanic? Uh, well, mechanic, I kind of didn't have a choice. I get to be third generation. Uh, my grandpa actually was part of the guys that hit the beach in Normandy, and my dad just kind of picked it up from him. So, like I say, I didn't have a choice. Now, as far as prepping, I got into it thanks to an injury. My wife's son decided we were messing around, tripped me, 
and hit the ground, had a scratch, no big deal. But amazingly, if you get a little scratch on your legs, sometimes they get infected, and that infects your knee, and the next thing you know, you're off work for a month. And that kind of plays with the paycheck a little bit. So in that month, I found out, you know, hey, I can do couponing. Yeah, mm-hmm. a guy couponing, right? And uh, But got into the couponing thing and then realized, you know, I really don't have anything. So from there, got... Uh, Got into, you know, kind of building up a little bit in case of emergencies like a bad knee and just kind of evolved from there. Got looking more into the prepping thing. And then about the time the Mayans didn't show up, I found your show and have been listening to ever since. Oh, cool. I also noticed in your notes you were stationed in Fort Kobe. I was there for a while myself. What what time of the uh, you know world were you there years while? Um, I kind of spent Christmas of 96 there. Okay. They sent me from uh, Fort Bragg to Fuerte Kobe, and I don't miss the place, brother. No. <laughs> you had to be there toward when we were leaving for good. Um, yeah. I was there until 93, and I know we were getting ready to get ready to leave at that point. So I pulled up the old barracks from Fort Kobe on uh, Google Earth one day. It looks like they turned them into condominiums or something. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing. It doesn't look anything from the sky like it did when we were there. No motor pool, no nothing. Just a nice little residential place to live. Well, yeah. I've had it, brother. Yeah, yeah, right down from Veracruz Beach. Um, mm-hmm. There's better beaches in the world, let me tell you. Anyway, um, back to the, the main subject, you know, how, how, people out there that, that look at their vehicle and think, these damn things are too complicated or whatever, or they've just never been mechanically inclined um, I, I'm a little bit like you. I didn't grow up as a mechanic. I grew up as a coal miner's son, but we were all shade tree mechanics. And then I, you know, took some time in the military, and I, I was a mechanic in the military. Um, but a lot of people have never done anything, you know, you know, north of maybe changing a tire, uh, a spare tire at that, not even breaking down a bead. So, as someone that's like that, how do they get started doing repairs? Well, the first thing you you need, you got to figure out you want to do it, and and that's honestly the biggest thing because stuff like this, you you really can't approach, you know, half-assed. I mean, it's it's the biggest thing I see people do, like like you're talking about putting a tire on. It's amazing how many people put their lug nuts on backwards when they do a uh, like a flat tire. You know, there's a little cone on it that's supposed to point toward the wheel. And people put it on backwards, you know, and, and your wheel can come loose like that. <laughs> so that's that's one of those simple, stupid little things that people do. But, but like I say, first off, you got to want to do it. And then pick a project. I mean, you know, obviously you can't eat an elephant in one bite, so you can't fix your whole car in a day. You know, figure out something you want to do, look at it, and kind of decide, okay, I think I can tackle this. You know, I think I can put brakes on my car. I can do this. I can do that. Um, from that point, honestly, like YouTube, it is amazing how many people have the time to pull the dash out of a Ford truck and take a video of it while they do it. You can watch the whole thing and you can go, okay, I can do that. Or, you know, that's kind of a bigger bite than I want to take. So kind of measure out what you think you can do. You know, if you can't put a bicycle together, you're not going to put a heater core in a truck. So (laughs) know thy limits. But no, like I say, YouTube it, Google it, um, you know, figure out what's involved with it, figure out if you think you've got the tools to do it, 
and then find a friend who kind of knows how to do it or maybe even does know how to do it and say, okay, when I call you up for advice, are you going to shoot me? You know, because it, it's amazing how many times I get, okay, I was doing this and I can't get this back together. All right, let me see what's going on. You know, it's pretty common, unfortunately. So how do you know when you're over your head? Like when you just need to get somebody else in there to do it for you? Uh, when you put your first wrench on there and it starts to strip and you start bleeding <laughs> where you've missed something, th- those are big indicators. You know, um, uh, like I say, when, when you when, when you spend more time in front of the computer trying to figure out how to take it apart than you're actually spending doing it, that's kind of an indicator. Um, you know, when, when all your wrenches say made in China, those are pretty big indicators. Um, you know, it's funny for, for the most of the stuff that you do, you know, at work we have one rule, you know, and rule number one is pump the brakes. Anybody will tell you because it doesn't matter what's wrong with your car. If it won't start, if it won't pull, if it won't steer, you can usually do okay. But if you can't pump the brakes, that's where things go sideways real quick. Um, that or if you have fixed it, quote, unquote, and, you know, so you put a water pump on it and water is leaking out of it faster than you put it in, um, you just went over your head, you know, um, how it's driving. If all of a sudden you've done this and now it's shaking real bad, stop, you know, pump the brakes, stop, and figure out what went wrong. Because many, many times a tow truck, you know, swallow your pride, a tow truck is so much cheaper than, well, I fixed it and now it's broke, you know. Got to be smarter than the uh, the thing you're working on. Got you. So when a person realizes they've maybe gone too far, they've done something they shouldn't have, and and now it's it's messed up. What then? I I mean I'm sure you've seen the sign that says something like labor rates twenty dollars an hour, thirty if you watch, you know, uh, forty oh, if you yeah. ask questions, and a hundred if you broke it first and then brought it here for me to fix it. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, stop. You know, like I say, if you if you're if you're in a hole, stop digging. You know, because like I say, if you've attempted it and it didn't work, stop right there. You know, I mean, literally walk away from it. Give yourself time to think about it. You know, you laugh at this, but so many times you've walked away from it. You sit down, you take a poop. It's amazing how much thinking you can do on a toilet. You know, because you're not looking at it. You can't adjust it. You can't tweak it. You know, so, like I say, just just give it a second. That is the first time that advice has ever been given on the Survival Podcast. I swear to God. (laughs) No one has ever suggested take a break and go take a poop. Um, Though, I do understand what you're saying. I do an awful lot of reading on the throne. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great place to think. That in the shower, because... You know, my personality is, you know, I'm, I'm a fix-it kind of guy. And so if it's in front of me, I, you know, okay, I can adjust it. I can affix it. I can this. I mean, I'm telling you, the best vacation I ever had was a cruise because there is nothing there for me to do. I can sit down and do nothing. But, but like I say, the stepping away gives you just that moment to think about what went wrong, you know. And if that don't work, stop. <laughs> Get somebody who knows what they're doing, you know. So you've got something in here I've never even heard of, so I don't know what you're talking about in your notes. It's called Magic Smoke, and it says it's a bad thing. 
Um, what is it and why? Maybe it's good that I don't know what it is, but what is it and why is it bad? Is it like an oil treatment or something like that? No, nope. magic smoke is a wonderful thing. All electronic components contain magic smoke. Okay. And if you ever let the magic smoke out of something electronic, <laughs> you cannot put it back in. <laughs> now it makes sense. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, tried something, the magic smoke comes out. Okay. Okay. Please continue. <laughs> right. And, and to give you just a little story on this, this happened at work um, within the past month and a half, I want to say. Something simple. A guy had a kick cruiser. And he wanted to upgrade his taillights to LED taillights. He puts them in, and it blows the fuse for the brake light. No big deal. I put another one in it. Well, it blew that one. Well, then he upped the caliber. He put a larger one in it. He put another larger one in it. Larger, 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 until the wire harness started melting. This is where he didn't listen to rule number one. And he wound up, like I say, melting the harness. We had to go in and replace the harness, but the guy couldn't understand what he did wrong because, well, I put the other fuse of the other taillights back in after he let out the magic smoke. So, like, $4,600 later, he's got the same truck he had before, only now it works, you know. <laughs> now, and what's worse about that, he got lucky where it was only the, the harness, but, you know, when you've got 40, 50, 60 wires running together, and you let the smoke out of one, well, that, that you can transfer that wire to another wire to another wire, and the next thing you know, you've got a case of when you turn the key on, the radio turns on, the wipers turn on, and the horn blows. And it doesn't make sense because you've got a bunch of naked, melted wires having a field day. I've got so, one for you. I used to have this old Cherokee, old Jeep Cherokee, and uh, something shorted in the wiring harness. It was like a couple thousand dollars to fix. I didn't touch it. It just broke. And uh, But the only thing that it did wrong was the damn fan would run when the vehicle was parked, which, of course, if you let it go on, would kill the battery. So my solution was I kept a wrench tie-wrapped up under the hood with a removable tie-wrap, and I would just loosen the negative uh, terminal on the battery and disconnect it whenever I parked it um, and then put it back on. And then the, the good part is every once in a while it just wouldn't do it, and the day I took it to trade it in, it didn't do it. <laughs> there you go. Move quickly, smile, and say it's a keeper. It, it became a, a sap or someone else's problem, right? But yeah, weird it. things happen with wiring, and uh, you know, it's, it's an it, it, that's a perfect example of something that's very expensive as a wiring harness. Because sometimes you can you can bypass a short or something, but if you've really fried it. And or in this case, just the way it was built, nobody wanted to jack with it. And I couldn't figure out how to bypass it. Um, it's very, very expensive to replace, and it's not so much the part; it's the labor because of how the damn things run throughout the vehicle. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's it's a really difficult job. It's one of those things that you were talking about. Do you want to do it or not? There's a lot of times on my vehicles, I'll look at something and go, "Oh, I know how to do that." But I'm not going to do that. I don't have the time to do that. And it's one of those very time-consuming things. Yeah, well, like, like back to the wire harness. To, to repair this, the dash of the car had to come out of the vehicle. Yeah. They had to pull the seats out. I mean, you know, the bottom half of the interior for, for taillights, you know, for something just as stupid as a brake light. It, it took so much because, you know, they're building the car. The engine is the same. If you take something from 1928 
versus right off the showroom floor. You still got pistons, valves, you know, a little different organization, but pretty much the fundamental engine is the same now as it was then. It's the pretty box they wrapped it in called the car. That's what's changed, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I got a question for you because you, you're, you've, you've worked in the industry for a long time and a lot of people say, you know, basically never take your car to the dealership. Um, are dealerships as bad as they say? Well, here's the beauty of it. You know, if, if you take your car to Bob's garage, you are pretty much the same as taking it to a dealer. Because dealers are independent. I mean, yeah, they all fall under, you know, the Chevy or Toyota or whatever name, and that's who they primarily deal with. But every dealer is independent in that realm. You know, if if you go to, like I say, you go to Bob's Garage and they treat you like crap, you're not going to go back. You know, if you go to Joe Schmo dealership in Sheboyganville and you don't like how they treat you, try another one. You know, it, it's it's no different that way than it is any other way, you know. And, and sometimes it's the person, you know. I mean, just because you've got a guy who's really good with aligning your car, you know, he may not be the best in electrical. And so he may still try to fix it. You know, you've got people who are better at doing this versus doing that. You know, and you may get someone who's more proficient going left than right. But honestly, the dealer itself is is not the problem. You know, you're, you're paying guys who, you know, yeah, they're trained on this, they're schooled on this, and they know the car is bumper to bumper. And the good thing usually is if, you know, if you're over your head, well, you can consult with the guy right next to you, you know, for a different view or go take a poop. You know, but go go say, hey, man, I've got this problem. What is it? And all of you know the vehicle, and you can get a real, like a doctor. I mean, the doctor doesn't necessarily know everything, but he may specialize in this. You ask the other guy, he's like, oh, try that. Boom, done. You know, so you, you do have that to fall on. Um, and a lot of things, honestly, I can say is, is price shop. You know, because everybody goes, well, the dealers are expensive. The dealers are going to cost you out the yank. Not necessarily. I mean, we actually do some things. Um, I'll put it like this. If you came and, you know, where I work is where I work. But if you came there and needed a battery put in your car, we actually install them cheaper than the parts house right down the road will sell it to you. So it's, it's work of the draw sometimes. Some things cost a little more because the parts are higher. But as far as the big bad rap that the dealers had from like 1950 and 60, most of that is a thing of the past. You know, it's a business. And if you price yourself out of a business, people aren't going to shop with you. Yeah, I think there's a big thing with the pricing. I think it depends is like a lot of answers have. So if I know what I need done, let's say I need belts put on a vehicle and it would normally not be a bad job, but there's all kinds of cowlings and crap in the way and I just don't feel like doing it. But I know that... It's just time to replace the belts on, let's say, my, my F-350. Um, that's a pretty simple job that I know that pretty much anybody can do. And that's you pick up the phone, you can call Pet Boys, you can call a local place, you can call a dealership, and you can get pricing on that. Um, if your vehicle's doing something, you really don't know what the hell's wrong with it, 
to me, it makes a lot of sense a lot of times to go to, you know, they, you know, they call the Chevy house or the Ford house or wherever your vehicle's from because they do have experience on those specific vehicles and they're more likely to be able to diagnose the problem. This is true. No matter how you do it, like I say, it's, it's an expert game. And the way they are now, like I say, once you get beyond a valve and a nut and a bolt, it really does matter what you know past that. Definitely. I think the other thing is, too, like, I don't care if you're going to dealership or not. Uh, I'm pretty tough on people when I drop a vehicle off for work, and I generally say something to the effect of, if you do anything to this vehicle that I have not authorized you to do without checking with me first, you have done it for free. Do we understand yep. each other? And I, I hate to be that way, but I've been through it one too many times. Actually, I've been through it once, so that was it. And I've had that approach ever since. And I remember year I mean, years ago, Darth and I had just met, and I had had a run-in with this place, but it was just down the road. And they did good work, but they, they had a tendency to do stuff they weren't supposed to do. So I told her, drop your car off. I want you to learn how to do this. I said, I want you to memorize these words. So she said it just like that, went in. But I didn't go in because I knew the guy knew me. And uh, I said, you make sure. And she says, I told him, and I told him to call me and not to do anything. So we came back, and they did a couple things that probably were okay to do, but they did not call and check first. So she goes in, and uh, she comes right back out, and she's fuming. And she goes, I need you to come here and be your, your asshole self. <laughs> so I'm like, excellent. I get to do this by request. So I walk into the door, and I, I, I shit you not, it was the exact same service rider that I had dealt with like three weeks ago. And he was sitting there kind of looking all confident, and I opened the door, and I walked in, and he just slumped. You know, his head just went down like, oh, God, him. So I went over, and I'm like, well, what did you do? Well, we did this and this. So did she ask you to do it? Well, uh, no, but it needed – so you did it for free, right? Well, I'll have to get my manager to approve that. Why don't you go do that since you did what you were and, – and that's an example of a place you don't go back to. Um, yeah, like I say, I, at the end of the day, no matter what you do, it, it's a business. And, yeah, if, if you're going to take the money that you have busted your hump for – and give it to somebody, give it to them for what you want. Absolutely. And, and, you know, another thing to do is if you go in and you get stuff done, feel free to ask for the parts back. I mean, if, if it's, you know, if you're not confident on, well, did they do this? Because, like, you know, I'm kind of harping on water pumps, but some of the vehicles, you can put a brand-new pump on it, and once all the pretty covers are put back on, you can't see it. You'll never know that it was put in. Ask for the parts. Say, hey, can you put the old part in a box? I want to take it home. Okay, you know, because that, that kind of, like I say, if, if, you, if you have a doubt, why are you there, one, but two, if you just want to make sure that they put your plugs in or they did this or did that, ask for your old parts. The, the technician who's working on it does not give a rip. It's like, okay, I'll drop it in a box. Here you go. Merry Christmas. Put it on your tree, you know. Nobody cares. Yeah, I have to say the biggest abuse that I've seen is with brake jobs. Um, there's never a brake job where they don't tell you at least one caliper needs to be replaced or something like that. They don't tell you a rotor's completely gone or whatever. And, and because I know what I'm doing, most of the time, it, it's the thing that I get calls for from friends or family members that are like, I took my brakes down there for a $130 brake job, and now they want $900. Um, and and yet generally, I find a lot of the repairs, the brake shop, especially like just brakes and all, want to do completely unnecessary, especially on older vehicles. I mean, you've got a vehicle that's a $2,000 vehicle. There's nothing unsafe about the brakes on it. And they're like, well, it might squeal a bit or two. I'm not going to put $1,000 into a vehicle that's worth $2,000 so it doesn't squeal. 
Yep, and and we've seen that actually quite a bit. You know, where someone will come, well, they want a second opinion, which is, you know, yeah, go for yeah. it. They'll come, they'll come in and be like, hey, they told us that it, this needs this and this needs that. And, and it's so funny to tell someone, well, come here, let me show you. You know, well, what do you mean? Uh, come, I'll show you what you got. And you'll point at stuff and you'll look at them. And, and I hate to sound like this, but, you know, you're, you're explaining this to them and they're giving you the thousand-yard stare. But, you know, you're trying to show them, look, this is what a bad one looks like. This is what a good one looks like. If a shop isn't going to show you that, Again, how do you trust them? How do, you know, show me what's broke. Oh, it's broke right here. You know, and, and honestly, even if you don't know what what looks good and what looks bad, if you take them and tell them to show it to me, pull out your phone, take a picture of it. You know, that way later on you can go, okay, guys. You know, did you think I really need to do this, or do I really need to do that? Again, sometimes it's it's presence. You know, if you stand there. And you say, show me, explain it to me, make me understand it. If they can't do it, is it a little bit backdoor? You know, yeah. it, it, putting, putting on, I guess, a strong front, you know. Well, and I hate to say this, but it's true. I've noticed that, that females tend to get abused that way by service riders more often. It is a man's game, and I have I've seen like I say I've worked at a couple of different places, and I have seen that in a couple of places where it's almost you know well you know what does your husband think? Well you know did you ask the man in the relationship? And it's and, and you get that powder puff bitch slap from some of them when it happens because it's like <laughs> no I got this you know. Yeah. But yeah, and that's the problem, and and I hate to say it, but it's that you know women have the same ability to educate themselves on this stuff as a man. Women have, I mean, I I have actually unfortunately only met two women that could you know toe to toe me with you know just a, a basic knowledge of okay this works this way this works that way got it got it got it you know, and it's it's sad because there's there's really no excuse to be dumb in the modern age. You know, there's, there's no reason why you can't, like I say, YouTube, educate, look at what it takes to do a job. Even if it's over your head, you understand, okay, you have to pull all this crap off. Now I understand why the water pump costs $900. You're practically building the engine to get it. You know, I think what I mean though, when I say women are te- I see women tend to have more abuse and service riders and, and techs that are on commission is, Women tend to be really easy to make afraid of things with a vehicle they don't understand, and especially with the brake thing. I mean, I just went through this with my son's girlfriend where she's like, well, I want my child to be safe, and I'm like, just please don't let these. And, it, you know, it was a $900 job that turned into a $150 job for a five-minute phone conversation. And uh-huh. I, I've talked a lot on the air recently about how women need to be more empowered, and that's one way is don't let somebody intimidate you or make you afraid just because you don't understand something. Because the truth is you can get a lot of information really fast today on this thing called Google. I mean, uh-huh. you can find out the oh, yeah. truth about a lot of things really fast. And the second opinion I think is great advice, uh, Max. I think it's really great advice, and I think that anytime – you know, you're going to spend more than a couple hundred bucks. Just say, you know, well, let me think about this. I'll, and as long as your vehicle moves, just tool it down the road somewhere else and go, they said X, what do you think? Um, most of the time you can get that for free or for a $45 diagnostic or whatever. And, you know, if it saves you $500, it's time and money well spent. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yes, most definitely. I mean, like I said, we've we've had you know we've had vehicles towed in and towed out because it's like you know I don't trust this person. I think this is too much. Okay, no problem. You're there, there's nothing that says you have to deal with you know Joe Schmo's automotive repair and you know tire emporium. Go to wherever you want. Welcome yeah. to America. Yeah, yeah, and I think that makes the whole market better. I think if more people did that, we'd have less problems because it would be. I think the reason some of the service riders just jack up bills is because they can and they're trained to and because it works. And it's the last one that makes it keep going is that it works. If every time if every time they try to do that, especially the gals, they got what you call the powder puff bitch slap. <laughs> I think there'd be a lot less of it real quick in the market. Let's let's move on more to a prepping angle though. Um how would you advise people to prep their vehicle for everyday disasters? Flat you know, lights out, no gas, that type of thing. Oh, well, I guess it depends on, on, on kind of what level you would like to prepare for. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. The, the Some of the simple stuff, like a flat tire, if, you know, you're on the side of the road and you got a flat, and it's just something like a small nail or whatever, personally, I, I hate fix-a-flat. It is nasty stuff. It, it does things to tire pressure sensors that cause them to die, which makes another light come on your dash. But if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, like something simple like that, you can spend money for AAA, for this, for that, or put a can of fix-a-flat in it. You know, and if you've got just a, a can of fix-a-flat in the back of your car, that can save your butt so much, you know. Um, a simple check engine light reader. You can pick one up at like Advanced AutoZone, whatever. Usually they're under fifty bucks for something that just gives you the code, or you can drive to. There's simple places that will just read you the code and say, "Here are the numbers." And you go, "Okay, cool, thanks." Again, use your Google Foo, and you can you can find out a ton of stuff. The forums are awesome for check engine light stuff because somewhere Billy Bob has had the same problem, and he fixed it this way. Well, if you go past Billy Bob and look at Betty Joe. She's had the same problem and fixed it the same way, you know. So the forms are iffy, but if you're getting the same answer two or three times, it's it's a pretty strong deal, you know. Now, if your check engine light is on and it starts blinking at you, that's the one exception um, because that means you've got a, a skip that's bad enough to do damage to the engine. Um, when that starts happening, you, you pretty much need to, you know, woe mule and figure out what's going on with that one. And that is one of those moments where, yeah, the tow bill sucks, but replacing a piston or a catalytic converter or something like that has a comma involved, and it was worth saving it for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, get you get you a quart at least of whatever fluids, you know, power steering, brake fluid, engine oil, transmission. Of try to find something that's a pretty tough bottle. Because, you know, a lot of these things are great sitting on the shelf, but if you throw them in the trunk of your car and they rattle around a little bit, they start leaking. You know, even if you had to pull it out of this bottle and, you know, I've actually seen people who have taken water bottles because, you know, they're great at getting the crap beat out of them. And they've put their, their fluids that they need in case of in one of those. You know, it, it saves the effort of, again, you know, my power steering doesn't work. It's leaking like crazy. Okay, I'll put this quart of power steering fluid in there. That'll get me home. That'll get me a little bit further, and I didn't burn up my power steering pump. 
I fixed the line later. It saved me some money for that, you know. Um, the other little pet peeve I got, people love to take their tires once they're, like, bald and slick and use that as, well, use that as a spare. Well, yeah, it holds air, but, you know, if, if you're prepping for the everyday disaster, you know, you, you have a flat, you put the tire on there, you're broke, you know, it's, it's been that moment in your life where you don't have the extra funds. Now you've got a bald tire on your car that you need to replace now. Whereas, as dumb as it sounds, if you're driving around with a spare tire that, you know, you, you ran over a piece of rebar and poked a hole in it and it can't be repaired, if your spare tire had at least half the tread on it, you could drive on that for, you know, a month, two months, easy, before you had to do something with that. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think that I don't like donuts, and I don't like bald spare tires. I'd rather have a bald spare tire with air in it than no spare tire, obviously. But um, it seems to me, especially when I remember when I was, you know, a workaday Joe twenty years ago and always broke. And there's a lot of people, you know, that are that are in that scenario. That um, stuff always happens at the worst possible time. You never get the flat tire on the second payday of the month when you have some money. You get the flat tire a week before the end of the month when your broken rent's due in a week. And yeah, You also never get a flat when it's sunny outside and you're on a side road either. Cor- correct. And that's why I'm also I'm a big fan of a small air compressor, a plug kit, and like you said, a can of fix the flat. I've heard from a lot of people that, that really kind of crap on my statement about a can of fix the flat, but my view is a lot of times they'll put enough air in the tire to get off the damn road. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times that's, you know, and you, if, you know, if your, your wife or whatever doesn't want to take an interest in anything and, and doesn't want to learn how an air compressor works, at least you can put that on there, put a little bit of air and get off the damn road. Um, cause I myself do not want to change a tire on the shoulder of the highway with vehicles going by me at 85 freaking miles an hour while my car's sitting on a jack. Um, cause mm-hmm. they only have to hit me. All they have to do is one of them big trucks come by and blow the damn car off the jack and kill me. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of having at least the capability to get the hell off the road. Um, cause I've had experiences like that where I hit, like I hit a piece of angle iron on the tollway one time. Well, you put a hole in your tire with a piece of angle iron, you're, you're not airing it up with anything. So, um, you know, I'm sitting there changing a tire at the tollway. Fortunately, it was close to the gate, uh, the toll gate. Somebody was slowing down, but it, you know, it's another risk. Um, I had a guy, this is crazy. I was sitting there changing the tire, and this fool pulls over, walks up to me, and I, I swear to God, asked me if I have some spare change because he just realized he's on a toll road and doesn't have any money. <laughs> SMRT, baby. Smart as can be. My initial thought was this guy's trying to jack me, and I'm thinking, unless you want a forty five caliber hole... Uh, and a smack to the head with a tire iron. This is and and, and I, you know I just looked at him and realized he was dead serious. And I'm like, just get out of here. I can't. I mean, I'm sitting at 107 degrees. I'm covered in grease. I'm changing the tire, and you want 50 cents? You need. I mean, you got hey, to be in that ballsy, honestly. <laughs> but um, well, no, I, well, I, you I, know, I, and I, if you put the fix a flat, if you if you have to use the fix a flat. You know, the biggest thing is get it in there, use it for what it is, and then go somewhere and tell them, hey, I got a can of fix the flat in my left front tire. Can you break it down, get the stuff out, 
and fix it, you know. And if it's a nail or something, they'll pull the nail out, they'll clean the goop out, they'll fix it, and you're good to go, you know. And it served its purpose of an emergency repair. Yeah. That's really all it's for, you know. And that's what it is for. And it's it's not to put in your tire and drive around for four weeks. Though I've known mm-hmm. people who have done it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, get you a toolkit, uh, you know, back to stage one. Get you a toolkit that doesn't say made in China. Yeah. You know, you don't have to pony up and get the Snap-on and Matco and all those guys. You know, I mean, heck, there's there's really good kits. You know, Sears has them. The Husky brand has actually been pretty impressive with me. I've got, you know, I've got those in mind. No, and they're they good tools. they really well. Yeah. yeah, they're good tools. Absolutely, they're good tools. They're, they're you know... They may not be a snap-on, but they're – I mean, you got to think about this. Unless you're dealing with really cheap Chinese junk, you're probably not going to snap a wrench with, you know, basic human strength. And if and if you have a 916th wrench with a 9-foot cheater pipe on it, you're you're doing something wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, here, here's your something for the, the extreme preppers, you know, because there are the guys who want to be ready for everything. I have I have found recently the, they make these kits where you can take your spare tire out. And this is kind of pickup truck based. But take your spare tire, mount it on the roof of your car, you know, with one of those little storage racks, and they have like a thirty gallon tank that fits where your spare tire used to. You know, and so that talk about driving extension. You know, you don't even need the uh, the Stephen Harris hot refuel method with that. Um, Here's one that you may want to watch out where you Google. But, you know, like the stuff I was talking about keeping the core of fluid in places, if you don't want it bouncing all over your trunk in your car, there's tons of places to hide things. I mean, the the edges of the trunk, there's this – is, this is where you watch what you Google. But if you look up where to – like, I don't know how to phrase this any other way, but like where to hide drugs in your car okay. or, you know, things like that. I mean, these guys know how to hide things. You know, and, and you can look and go, okay, I could, there's a big hole here. Well, I could put two quarts of something there. I could put a, you know, a little mini GI shovel here in case I get stuck in the sand. You know, there's a huge area on a pickup truck um, between the inside and outside of the bed. You know, and you could take, and actually, if you've got a bed liner, you pull the bed liner out, you can take... And um, I've seen where people have taken PVC pipe, and in that area, they've, they've actually put like a 30-gallon water storage, just taking the PVC pipe back and forth, back and forth through this hole, and they used the uh, the big clamps on it to hold it to the inside of the bed. Well, then once you put the bed liner back in, you couldn't see it was there. You know, the U-bolt to the PVC pipe worked great, you know. That and then I, one of the other big things is, you know, the guys with 10,000 candle watt power and, you know, 500 uh, halogen bulbs on top of their vehicle where they can see everything they want to go. Here's your Stephen Harris answers coming up. Um, the average spotlight, just one of the KC daylighters, that guy, one of them pulls about 10 amps of power. If, you put an HID bulb in it, you cut it down to 3.8 amps. If you can get, like, the new LED bars, those guys run about 2.6 amps. And so your alternator is only going to put out so much power. 
So, you know, generally you're putting in about 100 to 130 amps of power if you can keep your engine at around 2,500 RPM, and you're going to put out about 60 amps at idle. Well, if your car uses 20 amps to run itself, the fuel pump, the injectors, everything else, I know there's about 40 amps laying around that you can charge your batteries and run your accessories. So while you're out there tromping through the woods feeling like a manly man, you're killing your battery just by having all these lights on it. So, I mean, these are preps, too, keeping the electricity in your car. Mm. You know, not killing it, just running stupid stuff just to be cool. Gotcha, gotcha. So I got another question for you. Since you're you're still in the business, so to speak, and and I, I was watching vehicles get more complicated when I was uh, when I was still turning wrenches, and I know they've gotten more and more complicated. How complicated do they really make a car to work on today, and and why the hell do they do it? The why is unfortunately so, well. There's two whys, and they're both simple. One is the federal government says they don't need emissions, and so you have to do stupid things to meet emissions. That's why, you know, you can get a little car so many years back, they got like 40 miles to the gallon. They can't do that now because the emissions aren't there. And so you have to get worse fuel economy to get better emissions to burn the gas, what they consider properly. But a lot of the stuff is is the same. I mean, like I said earlier, the basics are the same. It still has a piston, still has valves, still goes up and down. But we're running into the, the little things, the add-ons that the customers have asked for during the years. You know, like, like BMW has a brake sensor that when the pad wears down so far, it turns the light on. It says, hey, you need brakes. It's, it's a nice, pretty little mechanism so that the customer knows, oh, I better go see Braco. Um, but those are the simple things. Now, some things like a Prius, there are certain models that if, if you finally wear the brakes out on a Prius, you can't just go out there and mash the calipers back and put new pads on it because you have to recalibrate the ABS sensor just to say, hey, you've got new pads. You know, the, the camshafts, actually, while the engine is running, the, the VVT on them, it spins the camshaft forward or backwards in degrees so that it, it, it actually adjusts when the valves open and close while it's going. You know, those are, those are the simple things. I mean, we've got there's more networking on a car than there is in most small businesses. I mean, you, say you want to roll your window up. You think, okay, I'll hit the switch. And, you know, the, the, the power goes from the switch to the motor and the window goes up. No. They've got it now where you, you just hit the button. And the switch tells the computer, I'd like the driver's window to roll up, please. It tells one computer. That computer says, okay, we're going to provide power to the other computer. And then that computer says, okay, motor up. And then it counts up how many times the motor turns. And it knows, okay, I've gone, you know, 700 times. I must be near the top of the motor. So it slows down. So that way, if you get your fingers in the door, it won't smash them. And, and keeps track of that, you know. So... Sometimes it should be really simple, like, you know, if your window regulator breaks and you need to put another one in, okay, bolt it up, done. Then your window doesn't work, and you have to go through and recalibrate where the top of the window is so that way it knows, you know, when to stop going. And they've even, they're even now they have wireless communication between things, like the, the flat tire sensors. Uh, you know, they, they started out... Originally, 
just counting how many times your wheels went around. And it knows, you know, I don't know, in a mile, I turned 718 times with 30 pounds of pressure in it. Well, when you let the pressure out, it actually changes the diameter of the tire. And when it says, well, wait a minute, I went a mile, and I'm 20 shy of what I should be, ding, lights on because it thinks there's a flat. Well, the catch of that was when people rotated their tires, then it did, you had to reset it or it would tell you, hey, something's wrong, and the light would come on. Now, there's a little sensor in each of your wheels that, like, every five minutes goes, ding, hi, I'm sensor A04. I'm 72 degrees, and I have 42 pounds of air in me. And that's how it keeps track of the tire pressure, uh, you know, it, which also makes a nice way to track you for the people with 10-fold hats because that's a complete – every sensor is unique. It has its own ID, and they can track you through your sensors if you really want to get, you know, like I say, deep in the tenfold hat people. So the car is the same. You know, the doors open and close the same way, but it's, it's like I say, little things like I need a motor, I need a switch, I need a latch. That's where the fun begins. And that's where, like I say, use your Google Foo and find out what it takes to put stuff in. Well, yeah, and I think that there's a, a, a more to be said with that on how dumb we've gotten because of the government. I think back to I had this car in the uh, in the, the I had it I guess I had it right after I got out of the army. So it was early '90s, but the car was from the '70s, and it wasn't exactly a feat of engineering or Ford's finest product. It was called a Mustang Two, all right? <laughs> the, the the big Pinto, right? right? Um, it turns out I should have kept it because there's like a cult following around them damn cars today, and if they're in nice shape, they're they're actually pretty expensive. Um, but this little car was a four-cylinder car. It was pretty easy to work on, except there were some things that they'd crammed in that small body, like changing the starter. You had to basically unbolt part of the motor mount and jack the motor up to get the starter out. But it wasn't it wasn't technically complicated. That car got 25 miles to the gallon. It got 25 miles to the gallon if I drove it 80 miles an hour or 5 miles an hour. It got 25 miles to the gallon in town. It got 25 miles to the gallon anywhere and everywhere. And I know that doesn't sound real impressive today, but for 1974 technology, um, for a sporty little car, I mean, to, to be able to get that consistent mileage was awesome as far as I was concerned. And... That car could not be re- replicated today. The, the the motor in that car would, would you know technically fail emissions or whatever. Oh, I know. Like I say, I have just become. I, I now I now have my own EMP proof vehicle, and I'm loving it. I have. My wife decided she wanted a rail buggy, so I now have a nice '72 Volkswagen engine sitting on this rail buggy. And I am just I am flashbacking to when life was so simple. Because it's like, man, here's everything. I can put a wrench on every bolt. I can adjust stuff. I can tune this. I can make it run better or worse. All of that stuff is gone now. It's all computer controlled. I mean, you can't change the idle. You can't change the timing. And everything on this little bug motor is like right there. I can, I can work on it. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, on, you know, on the kind of the last note that, We've gotten. We've talked about a little bit all these complications and things like that, but it also seems today that like everything is push button down to ignition now. What what made that change happen? 
everyone, well, it, here's your teacup generation right here. You know, it, it took me forever to find, I, I just got a truck that, to put it in four-wheel drive, amazingly, I have to pull down, reach down in the floor and pull this lever to oh. make it go into four-wheel drive. Do you know how hard it is to find a truck that you have to pull something to make something work? Yeah. You know, it, it just scared me. I have 350. You actually have, for low, you got to get out of the vehicle and turn in the hub. Now that, oh, my God. That is, you know, <laughs> that's just an impossibility to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, they, they want to go mud bogging, but they don't want to get dirty. Yeah. So, yeah, it's every, everything is like that, you know. I mean, it's convenience over function. No matter what, I want this to be easy. And as soon as something breaks, all of a sudden it's cost over convenience. Well, why didn't they do it manual? Well, because you didn't want it to. You know, I, we even, there's one vehicle I saw, I, I could not believe this. I played with this thing. It had a camera, a factory camera mounted in the front, in the back, and on the side. And it all pops up on the radio. So when you're tooling along in four-wheel drive and you set your speed control to three miles an hour and it crawls along and it controls everything from the gas to the brake, you can look at the thing and see, okay, I'm about to run over the curb, you know. The biggest thing, though, i, I got to admit, the biggest push-button, convenience, easy, simplicity thing we run into is Bluetooth. Everyone wants the phone to work through their car. And every time there's an update, every time there's a change, every time something happens, my Bluetooth doesn't work. You know, you can't yeah. talk on your phone, listen to your radio, and have a push-button phone call without that. <laughs> That's the one big killer we have. Yeah, well, it's probably not going to get any better or go away anytime soon, I'd imagine. Oh, no. Like I say, got to have everything teacup quality generated. Have a nice day. <laughs> so um what are what are your kind of your final thoughts just for people overall with uh doing their own maintenance and, and making determinations and you know what they what what do you I'll just put it this way, what do you think are the minimal things that a person should know? I've always said that the driver's license test is too easy because it just determines whether you can park a car and move it down the road. There are some basic things that you should know about a vehicle before you actually, you know, have one under your control. So do you think there's maybe some things like that you would say, like even if you don't want to learn how to change your own oil or whatever, here's some basic minimal things you should know about a vehicle as an operator. Well, yeah, as an operator, you, you definitely need to know where the stuff is in your car. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, it's amazing. People, people have driven a car for four, five, six years and have never popped the hood. I mean, you know, like I, like I said earlier, when I take people out and I show them this is what's broke on your car, they have no idea where to pop their hood. You know, I, one of the big things I tell folks, too, when they buy a car, you know, new, used, whatever, sit there with this amazing book that every vehicle comes with. It's called an owner's manual. <laughs> Get it out. Sit in your driveway Saturday morning with a cup of coffee and read it and look at it and push the buttons and pop the hood and open this and do that. You know, you need to know where your fluid is, you know, and what's bad is some of that is even going away. I mean, power steering is now electric, so the, the fluid is contained in the battery. It's called electricity, you know, but, but look underneath the vehicle. Like I say, don't be afraid to, to go to the back, pop the trunk, 
jack the tire. Even if you don't pull the tire off, run the jack. Make sure you know how to use it. Make sure you know where the oil is. Make sure you know where the dipstick is. Make sure you know where to put it. You know, like I said, people are, are afraid of their cars. They're afraid to pop the hood because something will break. Well, if you break it, apparently it was cheap, and you should try again. You know? <laughs> yeah, definitely if you break something by opening the hood, you, you've done something really, really wrong or something was really, really wrong. Well, hey, Max, I appreciate you being with us here on the air today. No problem, man. Glad I could help. All right, folks, and with that, it's been Jack Spearco today along with Max Maxwell helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.